Joe Villion. Hey, is Joe. now in the conference. Hey, Joe. Hello, Tom. Hey, Tommy. How are you today? I'm good, bud. How you doing? Great. Thank you so much for participating. Oh, it's, it's fun, man. It's my pleasure. I'm really excited about your new single, My Little Josette. Uh, oh, can you go into detail? Well, you know, Josette passed away on December 4th of 2020, about 5.30 in the morning. And um, I'm so so sorry about that. Yeah, it was that was a rough day for me, and I finally got to bed that evening. And um, I woke up the next morning out of a dream, and I kind of dreamed the song. And I, as soon as I woke up, I, I wrote it. It just came out, and within an hour, hour and a half, the song was written. So... <laughs> You know, none of us know how how we will react with a tragedy or a loss of a loved one or anything like that, but uh, that was really a surprise to me. I mean, songwriting has been my whole life. You know, I love writing songs, and I've always considered it uh, a gift, and um, that was one of the biggest gifts of all, to be able to write My Little Josette, and the day after she passed away, which is amazing. And it's like a two-year anniversary now. Right, I released it on the second anniversary of of her passing. What I love is the fusion of um, it. Really sounds like a Tommy Dorsey element with Frank Sinatra infused with pop. Right. Well, you know, Michael Lloyd produced the record for me. Michael and I have been friends for years. He's produced other records for me through the years, and uh, so I told him about the song, and he says, man, I want to produce it. And I, that was very exciting because Michael is, a, is an amazingly talented producer. And uh, oh, yeah. actually, he's, actually he had produced some Frank Sinatra stuff through the years. And, um, oh, really? So, yeah, so he he has his own studio there in Beverly Hills. And, you know, my, my condo is about two blocks from his studio. So we got together and, and did the song. And... Um, it just came out great. I told Michael, I said, you know, this is really a different, it's not a Tommy Rowe kind of song at all. In fact, I told him it's kind of a Sinatra thing. And he says, man, that's great. We'll we'll put it right in the Sinatra groove. And uh, so he arranged it and produced it for me. And they really captured the, the feel of a Sinatra record with the, with the uh, horns and the rhythm and the whole, the whole way he did the track was just perfect. Wow. So um, that really was... Uh part of the whole idea. I did not know oh, that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Abs- well, I'm such a huge... Who isn't a fan of Sinatra, you know? I mean, right. he, he's a legend, and I've always loved his music. I've got all of his albums, and I play them all the time. I'm still into vinyl, by the way. So so um, that was just perfect for me because uh, working off of his style and uh, me changing my style to do that was was a lot of fun, and and I think it came off really well. And I, I plan, Mike and I are planning to do a whole album in that genre, and you know maybe do some standards and some other songs that I've written and kind of do them in the pop genre like that. Now that to me is very exciting. Yeah, it's uh. exciting to me. You know, I've been doing this for so long, and to keep fresh and come up with new ideas is very difficult sometimes. So I, I think it's a fresh way for me to go. Well, I don't think people realize that when you went from Sheila to everybody, that was a real switch in genres. It was. Um, 
that was, uh, you know, I was originally, as a teenager in high school, I had a band, and we, we were a rock, rock, what they call back then a rockabilly band. So Sheila was originally, the way I wrote Sheila, I wrote Sheila when I was 14 years old, and the original title of it was Frida. I wrote it for a little girl I was going to school with, and um, it, it didn't have the Peggy Sue drums in it when I wrote it. It just it regularly had, you know, two, four drums. And then when I uh, met Felton Jarvis, he wanted to produce records for me in Nashville, and he wanted to uh, record Sheila, actually re-record it, because I had recorded it earlier locally in Atlanta. And uh, so he said, I'm, we'll go to Nashville, we're going to re-record Sheila, and I'm, we're going to do a tribute to Buddy Holly. And I thought, well, that's interesting, you know. So that's how the, the drums got into the record. And, um, of course, that turned out to be a huge record. My first number one, my first gold record. So uh, that kind of kicked my career off. And then after Sheila, I had I released a couple of records, and they didn't do much. And uh, Rick Hall over in, in uh, Muscle Shoals, Alabama, still started his fame recording studios, and he kept calling my manager about doing some recording over there, so we thought we'd give it a shot. And we went over and got back into the rockabilly groove with everybody. And uh, Rick helped us achieve that with his uh, musicians over there. He had David Briggs on piano and... Norbert Putnam on bass, and, uh, you know, he had the Muscle Shoals team over there, and they were very, very rockabilly-oriented. So that turned out to be my next big hit after Sheila. David Briggs, the producer? Yeah, David Briggs, he lives in Nashville. He's been on a lot of hit records. He produces records. He plays keyboards and arranges and uh, Norbert Putnam was the bass player they worked together with all the time. They they ended up moving from Muscle Shoals to Nashville, and they became the A-team in Nashville. It's, uh, Norbert and um, David and the, and the drummer, I forgot the drummer's name, but uh, they all worked together there in Nashville. Now, what were the Tams? Were the Tams that band that you had? The Tams? Right. Yeah, the Tams were one of the acts that uh, Bill Lowry handled. Bill Lowry was my manager, and he had ah. the Tams as well. And uh, the Tams recorded one of my songs called uh, You Might As Well Forget Him. And um, that went on to become quite a reggae standard. It, it was recorded by all the reggae artists, uh, released during the 70s and 80s. And um, so that was a song I wrote, kind of an R&B song I wrote. I used to love to write R&B. I couldn't really do R&B. You know, my voice was too high. I couldn't, I couldn't get into that groove of R&B, but I would try to get other, you know, R&B artists to record my songs. And uh, so the Tams cut that. And one of the best versions of it is by Jimmy Hughes, which you can pull up on YouTube. That's one of my favorite versions of You Might As Well Forget Him. Um, Jimmy Hughes was uh, one of Rick Hall's artists down in Muscle Shoals, and uh, Rick Hall produced that that record with uh, Jimmy on on Fame Records. Let's go back to the very original Sheila. So you wrote it at 14, and how did you go into the studio with it originally? Uh, Well, I met this uh, guy in Atlanta. I was still in high school, and, um, you know, he, he saw us perform at a, like a record store opening we we were like set up out on the sidewalk and played in front of this record store and he came over and said he'd like to produce uh, records with us with me and my band was called tommy Rowe and the satins and so we agreed to and so 
he asked if we wrote any songs. I told him, yeah, I wrote a song called Frida. And so he wanted to hear Frida. I sang Frida for him. He says, man, I love that song, but I don't like the title, so we need to change the title. And so um, we changed the title to, came up with Sheila. You know, Sheila worked well with the with the rhythm and everything. So we changed the uh, title of the song to Sheila, and I recorded it locally here in Atlanta. It was on Judd Records, which was a label out of Memphis. It was uh, Sam Phillips' brother, Judd Phillips. He started, I guess he wanted to compete with Sam and make his own, uh, compete with Sun Records. So he started his own label called Judd Records. And so uh, Judd uh, Phillips released it for me on Judd. And it was it was a kind of a local hit around the Southeast. It got quite a bit of airplay down here. And, and then um, it just kind of went away. It didn't do anything nationally. And then after that, that's when I met Felton. And Felton remembered the song and he wanted to re-record it with me and uh, that's when we went to Nashville and, and cut it in Nashville. So the demo that got the deal was basically the opening at the record store? Yeah, right. <laughs> we, we we used to play anywhere they'd let us set up. You know, in, in high school, we were so eager to play. We used to play at all the sock hops and, you know, at the high school. And after the basketball game, we'd play set up on the, on the gym floor. Of course, they were always yelling at us about, setting up on the gym floor because they didn't want you walking on the floor, you know, but we'd put stuff down to set our equipment up and we'd play for the dances. And so uh, we used to play for a lot of record store openings, you know, uh, back in those days, record stores were keen, you know, they, they always had lines out front to buy records. And so you had a built-in audience there. So, and, and if you had a band out front, you drew a crowd because of the band. So um, we were big at the record stores. <laughs> And Judd Phillips was at one of the openings. Well, Judd Phillips was uh, was the one who released uh, the record. He was out of Memphis. It, Sam Phillips' brother. And, right. Um, no. So he, who who was the one who heard you at the record store and liked Frida? Uh, that was um, uh, God. I can't remember his name. He it was just a young guy that produced records around Atlanta, and I can't remember can't remember his name. But um, but he went into he, the studio with you. Uh, no, he didn't go into the studio with us. He, uh, we we just recorded the song on our own, and then Judd Phillips picked it up. You know, he got he it. heard it and picked it up. Got it. And so you were essentially the producer. Right. Exactly. Well, I, the band was me and the band Tommy Rowe and the Satins. I had the a Satins. Band. S A T I N S. S A T I N S, right? And, ah. um And we, uh, the guitar player was Bobby West, and the drummer was Mike Clark. We we were only a three-piece band. We didn't even have a bass player. We got a bass player later on. Drolay Bush became our bass player, and Drolay has gone on to become a, a real, like an R&B singer himself. He's done quite well. So, how did you meet Felton? Uh, Felton saw us playing as a band, Tommy Rowe and the Satins. There was a DJ here in Atlanta named Paul Drew at WGST. And Paul was a big late-night DJ who would play all the hits. And, uh, I think he came on like at 10 o'clock at night and went to 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock in the morning. And um, he would have these uh, sock hops on the weekend uh, on Saturday nights, and he would bring in a star 
to uh, lip sync their records, you know. But uh, occasionally he'd get a local band to play live at his sock hop. And so we were playing live for Paul Drew's sock hop one Saturday night. And um, Paul brought Felton with him. Felton had just gotten out of the Marines. And um, he was trying to get into the music business. And Paul, Paul, of course, was a big DJ here in Atlanta. And uh, so Paul was trying to help him, you know, get a get a slot in the music business. And so Felton heard us and liked us. And he, that's when he approached me and said, you know, I want to make a record with you. And he said, but I, and then later on we met. And he said, but, you know, I, I don't want to use the band. I just want to record you and uh, use the band. We'll go to Nashville and use the studio musicians in Nashville. And so I had to tell my band that. And, of course, they got very upset. And you've heard stories about bands breaking up, and that was that was my breakup situation with the Satins. And you know, we didn't speak for years. We finally, you know, you know, we got to friendly later on after it was all over with. But they were very unhappy that I went off on my own. But you know, I figured I might as well give it a shot. And Felton was very persuasive in trying to get me, you know, in the studio. So Felton can sell straw hats to Eskimos. He was an amazing character. You know, Felton went on to produce Elvis. I don't know if you know who I'm talking about here. Felton Jarvis. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I was Jarvis studying up on you. Yep. Yeah, he produced Elvis the, oh, the last few years before Elvis passed away. Those were all produced by Felton. So uh, Felton, when Felton was in the Marines, he used to uh, mime Elvis at the, at the uh, service clubs. He would get up with his guitar and, and lip sync Elvis records, and he was like the original Elvis uh, impersonator, you know. And so he was a huge Elvis fan, and his whole his whole reason for getting into the music business was to meet Elvis. He wanted to meet Elvis so bad, and so finally, he was here in Atlanta for years. He produced, in fact, he, the first hit he produced was Gladys Knight and the Pips, and uh, with every beat of your heart, he produced that original record him and Ray Stevens produced that record and so he he finally got a gig at RCA in Nashville uh, Chet Atkins gave him a gig and he came in and worked for Chet for a couple of years and then Chet let him produce some records and one thing led to another he, he produced quite a few different artists up there and then finally Chet said I'm going to let you produce Elvis well Felton was in hog heaven man I mean that was his whole objective was to meet Elvis and he became a very close friend of Elvis so he was a happy camper. <laughs> That's an amazing story. So essentially, um, the Judd record was the demo that got the deal with, was it ABC at that point? Uh, well, the ABC deal is the one Felton put together. Um, right. Felton, I, th I through Bill Lowry, my manager, who became my manager, um, they put a, a deal together at ABC Records in New York to produce some acts. And uh, so we were, in fact, the session we did in Nashville was kind of interesting. Um, it was called a split session. In those days, you know, you had three-hour sessions, and you could cut maybe three or four songs in three hours. Well, to cover their bets, sometimes they'd take two artists in and do what they called a split session, and they'd give each artist an hour and a half to cut two songs. Well, that's the way my session worked. It, uh, the first artist was uh, was the guy. His name was Marvin Benefield, but he went under the name of Vince Everett. Felton gave him the name Vince Everett from Elvis's movie, uh, Love Me Tender. I think the movie was his character was named Vince Everett. So 
So, uh, and, and Vince or Marvin sounded exactly like Elvis. I mean, he didn't try to sing like Elvis, but he sounded like Elvis. And so uh, uh, Felton recorded him first on the session, and he cut Such a Night with him, which was an Elvis record that uh, was on one of Elvis's albums. And uh, a B-side, I think, something that Marvin wrote. And so they took, uh, when they cut Marvin first, it took like two hours and 45 minutes. Well, I was left with only 15 minutes to record two songs. So, oh my God! <laughs> so I I went in and, and Sheila wasn't even the A side. Sheila was supposed to be the B side. Save Your Kisses was was the um, the A side, and so we cut Save Your Kisses, and that left us about five minutes. And so we ran through Sheila one time and cut it, and that was it. And that was the record. You're listening to WBCALP, one hundred two point nine FM, Boston. Boston's community radio station. Sometimes, you know, the spontaneity of that first recording is what works. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. In fact, I miss the spontaneity of uh, spontaneity of those days, recording in those days, because you could do things on the fly, you know, and you didn't have so many options like different tracks and you could overdub and all that, to, like, like today. Back then, you couldn't do all that stuff. In fact, uh, Sheila was cut on a three-track machine, so it was just like, you know, all the tracks were full. When we left the studio, there was no, you know, sweetening or anything like that. And then when I cut everybody in Muscle Shoals, that was recorded on a quarter-inch tape. So it was like that was the record when we left the studio. There was no mixing or anything. Uh, uh, Rick Hall mixed it as we recorded. You know, that's the way he used to record in the early days. It sounds so good. Yeah, I mean that. I'm, of course, we we record. You know, we do over and over. We did. I probably on everybody. We probably did twenty takes. You know, but back then, uh, you're young. You're full of energy. Who cares? You know, you loving what you're doing anyway. And so it was just part of the thing that was so much fun making records. You know, it was uh, it was a lot of fun and the camaraderie between the musicians and the backup singers and all that and. It was it was a different it was a different way of making music back then for sure. I mean today it's like you you have in fact I think you have too many choices. You know you can get lost in the choices and sometimes the first thing you do is the best thing. You know. Well, the Beatles and Stones on foot track tapes. You know it, it it um the proof is right there. Oh yeah, those records are magical records. Absolutely. So essentially, if you did twenty takes of everybody, it was still pretty much live in the studio. Oh, it's always live. Yeah, even Sheila was live. I mean, there was no overdubbing. I, there was no singing once you were, I mean, you they, when you, you, were, you set up in the studio and you, that was it. When you finished singing, that was the record, you know. That, this is an amazing story time. I'm so happy we're talking. Um, yeah. But you're doing a lot of new recording. I see up on Spotify, you have a lot of um, newer songs from the past couple of years, right? Yeah, you know, um, in 2018, I had quadruple bypass surgery. And, oh, um, no, I'm sorry. Oh, no, I, listen, I'm, I'm doing great. Uh, you know, it's funny how life works. You know, I, I kind of retired. I was working, I was doing gigs up until about 2012. And um, 
uh, with Rick Levy was my uh, music conductor, and we did gigs all over the place. And um, then I had quadruple bypass surgery in 2018, and uh, you know I was I really dodged a bullet because I was I could have just um, in fact when I went to my cardiologist shit they gave me an angiogram, and, you know when they put the little camera in your vein and they look at your heart, and um, right. I'm sitting there watching. You can watch it. You, they give you a local anesthetic so you're not out completely. So I'm watching this little camera go through my veins, and I, I, all of a sudden it comes to this big black spot. I said, what is that big black spot? She said, that's your problem, 90, 95% blockage of your main artery. And I said, holy cow. And she wouldn't even let me go home. She put me in the hospital. I was at um, UCLA Medical Center, Ronald Reagan Hospital out in California, and um, three days later, they did surgery, quadruple bypass surgery. And um, so that's been since 2018, and I I feel fantastic. You know, they, the doctors were absolutely brilliant. I mean, I came through that with flying colors. And so after that, after that surgery, I decided, you know, time is not my friend anymore. I'm going to try to do as much recording as I can do, as songwriting and recording, because that's what I really love to do. And so after my surgery, I started, and I started recording things, and I went to Nashville and recorded. I went to Florida, recorded out in Beverly Hills. And um, whoever would let me go in the studio and record, you know, I would go in and make records. And so that's why I've had so many releases lately. And I'm, I'm right now, I just finished my new album, which we will release in January. And uh, I recorded that with uh, Mike Franklin down in Florida, in Orlando, Florida, and uh, we're going to release that uh, mid-January. And, in fact, Traffic Jam, I don't know if I sent you Traffic Jam or not. Uh, I did hear Traffic it on Spotify. I love it. Yeah, I yeah. put it out on Spotify, but it, it's one of the tracks on the new album. That's kind of the genre we have it on the new album. So <clears throat> uh, Traffic Jam is a song that um, I wrote in the early 70s with Matt Davis. Matt Davis is co-writer of that song. And... Um, we released it on my We Can Make Music album, which was produced by Steve Barry. It was the album right after she, uh, right after Dizzy. And um, I always loved the song. And in fact, the cut on the 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 original cut of the song I really liked. But I I thought I would redo it and put horns in it, you know. And so uh, that's that's how that happened. I always just loved the song, so I thought I'd re-record it. You know, when I write a song, I just you know. Of course, my big successful records were bubblegum records, and uh, that was, you know, I, I had the Sweet Pea and Hooray for Hazel, Dizzy, of course, and Jam Up Jelly Tight. They were all big records. And um, But when I write a song, I don't try to do it according to a style. I just try to do the song according to the way the song uh, fits, you know, to uh, the uh, genre, you know. It's, it's like the, uh, My Little Josette. There's no way I could do that bubblegum. That's not a bubblegum song. But, no. uh, you know, no. I had to do it the way I wrote the song. And so that's that's the way I've always worked as a songwriter, which kind of confuses the audience sometimes because sometimes I sound like a country singer and other times I sound like a bubblegum singer. Now I sound like Frank Sinatra. <laughs> but Josette um, still has the pop the pop feel, and that's great because it, um, it fuses the two, the Sinatra with, uh, you know, modern pop. Exactly. Well, I think my my vocal does that. I've always had a young sounding voice, and you know, I just turned eighty this past year. In fact, I released a, a record called Eighty. I wrote a, 
song called Eighty and a release. You might have seen it on on uh, Spotify. I did. It's up on Spotify. So, oh yeah, I saw it. You know, I but I still have this young voice, and you know, it's a blessing. I, I mean, my voice hasn't changed at all. I, I still sing all of my hits in the same key. It's kind. Of, it's a little harder for me. I mean, as I as you get older, you know, your voice kind of gets deeper, but uh, I can still sing with a with a high tone in my voice, and that makes me sound very young. Yeah, the DJ that played uh, Josette last week, Lou Spinazzola, he, he noted that. Tommy's still sounding young. I'm paraphrasing him. Yeah. yeah. And that's, you know, it, it's good because the audience loves to hear that it's still you, you know? Yeah, exactly. Well, it is what it is. I can't do anything. There. That's just the way I sing. So there's no reason to try to change it. So you've got a new album coming out that you did in Florida, but now you're working with Michael Lloyd. You'll be doing that in California? Exactly, yes. And will Josette be on the new album? I'm going to put uh, Josette as a um, uh, bonus track on this new album. Um, ah. Yeah, it'll be a bonus track. I didn't. Um, I wasn't sure if I wanted to include it in this in this album because all of the tracks are produced by Mike Franklin, and I was kind of uh, reluctant to put a track on produced by Michael Lloyd. But I think as a bonus track, it'll work out fine. So I'll put it as a bonus track, and then when Michael Lloyd and I finish our next project, um, uh, I will put uh, my little Josette on that on that album as well. Oh, good. <clears throat> now, do you have multiple mixes of Little Josette, or is this just the final mix, and that's the way you like it? Uh, that's that's the final mix. And um, unless, you know, if we go in, we might we might do, sometimes we do a remix, you know. Um, I mean, Michael likes to do, he'll hear something, and he'll want to fix it or change it and, so it it could there could be a remix on it. Yeah, Michael Lloyd is a legend. Um that's that's really exciting news for fans of Tommy Rowe. Yeah, um, I think so. I, I've always loved working with Michael. Uh Michael produced uh my album with Mike uh, with Curb Records back in the uh seven, back in the early eighties. We had um well actually we had a record out on Warner Brothers and then Curb Records as well. And Michael produced all those tracks. They, but we went country. They were country tracks. And so this is this is really a different uh, approach we're taking now. And uh, Michael's real excited about it as well. He just loves recording in this genre. So uh, it's going to be fun making this album. Yeah, I think Michael Lloyd worked with Sean Cassidy. Those were really great records. Oh, yeah. He did Sean Cassidy. Um He's working now on some of the Beach Boys stuff. He's been uh, archiving Beach Boys and Don, Donny Osmond. He produced some things with the Osmonds. Um, he's produced he's produced a lot of different acts. Barry Manilow. He's produced several albums on Barry Manilow. Um, he worked on some of Sinatra's stuff as well in his studio. So um, you know he's he's worked with a lot of great artists. So you met Steve Barry through the whole ABC deal, right? Right. I was on ABC Paramount, which turned into ABC Dunhill when um, Jay Lasker 
uh, and merged with ABC Records. It became ABC Dunhill Records. And um, that's when I met Steve. I, I, I was working with um, Kurt Betcher on, like in, um, after Hooray for Hazel and Sweet Pea. The, uh, we did some like uh, Sunshine Pop albums. We did an album called It's Now Winter's Day and one called Fantasy. And they were kind of the California Sunshine Pop style genre. And um, then they wanted to get me back into the bubblegum style, and that's when they introduced me to Steve Barry. And Steve was very happy to be able to produce because he was a big fan of Buddy Holly as well, and uh, he thought we could really make some, you know, some good records together. And Dizzy was the first one he did, so it turned out to be quite a quite a big record. Ah, oh, very nice. Wow. You've had this amazing career, Tommy, and, and it's it's brilliant that you keep recording. I mean, that is so important. Um, and as I go through Spotify, the songs are amazing because you have different styles. And But the other thing is I like how that you recut a lot of 60s classics, Tommy James, Crimson right. and Clover. Right, exactly. Well, I love that song. I mean, who doesn't? That's a classic, you know, Crimson and Clover. Um, I did a lot of the, I did Yummy Yummy, you know, I did a lot of the bubblegum stuff as well, uh, you know, uh, I just, you know, I love recording, That I love always loved going in the studio more than performing live, I mean, I, I enjoy performing live, but working in the studio and writing songs, and that's what I've always really, really enjoyed, and, um, you know, I've reached a stage of my life where I might as well do what I can do, because I you know, I just I do, I still write songs. I write something practically every week. I'm I'm writing a song, so um, I just have to do what I love. You know. Do you uh, recall the band The Cars from Boston? Yes, I do. I love The Cars. Okay, so I put your "Yummy Yummy Yummy" on the Cars group. I man, I helped manage a uh, Ben Orr group, a tribute to Ben. Uh-huh. I, I knew all those guys. I was at their very first show in Boston. Is that right? When they, yeah. you know, yeah, because there was this Aerosmith woman, um, Suki Jones, that was dating the drummer, and she oh, worked really? for my dad. She worked oh. for my father. So, oh, wow. you know, the drummer for the Cars, you know, he was so. I, I've known David forever, and I used to like Dark Shadows. So I'm at his apartment, and he pulls out the TV so I can watch Dark Shadows at midnight. That's what, how nice a guy David is. But they ripped Yummy, Yummy, Yummy's intro for Just What I Needed, their first hit. Oh, is that right? Yeah, it's the exact same opening. So I put your version in the Ben Orr group last week after we corresponded, and they went nuts because a lot of them didn't know that's where Rick O'Casey got the intro. Oh, is that funny? That's funny. But if you listen to Just What I Needed, the car's first hit, it's essentially that same rhythm under yummy, yummy, yummy. Right. Well, I, you know, I've got, I love their, I've got their CD. Um, I, I love that uh, one with all the hits on it. That, that's a great CD. And I used to love the cars. Um, well, now listen to just what I needed and then you're yummy, yummy, yummy. And you'll laugh. You, you will oh, that's laugh. Funny. Uh, that's great. That's a great story. Well, I was Ben's videographer. We lost him. But in 1995, for that year, I was videotaping Ben Orr, so I have a lot of tapes of him live uh-huh. video, um, and he was amazing. The lead singer was Ben Orr. Yeah. And Greg Box, the keyboard about, player. 
What about Rick? What is he doing? Rick passed away. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know. Rick that. had his wife, Paul, Paulina Porakova, the model. She has a brand new book out. Uh -huh. So um, Paulina's book just came out like this week, or last week or something. So she basically has a story of their life together. He became A and R for Electra Records, uh -huh. and he he produced a lot of bands like Weezer and so Rick was a heavy into record production. Yeah, and uh, yeah, he was very but talented. I knew, that, that, that's one reason I like the band so much is guitar work, you know. Um, he was, I, I really liked him a lot. Well, the lead guitarist, Elliot Easton, is brilliant. Elliot's one of the best, and he joined Creedence Clearwater Revisited. So the Cars oh, really? guitarist, yeah, was playing all those Creedence songs for years after the band broke up. It's a very interesting story, and I was there. And so I saw the whole thing evolve. They knew they were going to be famous the minute they signed with Fred Lewis because Fred uh -huh. Lewis had had the Jay Giles band. Oh, yeah, yeah. And what happened was Atlantic didn't want Fred managing them, so they gave him a job as a record promotion man, and he wanted another bite at the apple, so he found the cars, and he made them. And David told us, I was up in his apartment, he said, we're, <laughs> we're going there. It's, it's a done deal. He goes, this guy's yeah. going to make us famous, and he did. But oh, I saw the whole thing. I heard all those demo tapes in their engineer's studio apartment in Lynn. So all the songs you heard and, and some that became hits, I heard them when they first were recorded. And, you know, that was kind of an amazing thing, Tommy, to be there when it happened. Oh, sure. Sure. To watch it, to watch it grow into what it, the hit versions. Yeah. That's a lot of fun. But it, it's your version of Yummy, Yummy, Yummy that I played on the car site. I'll send you the link. And, the, and people are all raving about it because uh, they didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Well, you know those bubblegum yeah. records, all of that genre during the mid '60s, they were very uh, creative pieces of work, even though they were sounded very simple and you know, uh, but that's really what made them special—the simplicity of it. And um, you know, a lot of those records were copied through the years, like you say, the intro of that one. I didn't know about that one, but there's been a lot of the. Um, you know, there's only how many notes in a scale, 12, 13 notes, whatever it is. So, I mean, it's not uh, it's not um, unusual for artists to use different uh, pieces of different works through the years as, as uh, ideas, where they get their ideas from. And uh, that's not copying, really. I mean, it's just uh, you might use a rhythm, in other words, from a hit, and right. you won't even notice it, really. But uh, it's... Um, there's only so many things you can do with 12 notes. <laughs> this is WBCALP Boston, Boston's community radio station. So when you recorded Where Were You When I Needed You, is that with Steve Barry? That was with Steve Barry, yeah. Oh, oh no, that was with Kurt Betcher. Ah. Yeah, that was with Kurt Betcher. That was on the, I think that was on the Fantasy album. Yeah, because I believe Steve Barry did produce Grassroots, if I'm, if I recall. Yeah, well, he wrote the song. I think he wrote it with P. Uh, uh, P. F. Sloan. P. F. Sloan, I knew. Did you, did you ever meet P. F.? Uh, I met him in the studio one time with Steve. Yeah. 
I knew his girlfriend, so I met him twice in L.A. Uh, you know, another legend, another really brilliant man. Yeah. Yeah, he was a good songwriter, no doubt about it. Well, Steve, you know, ABC Dunhill had some great artists, you know. Uh, oh, yeah. They had, you know, all those great artists they produced. And, um, you know, probably one of the biggest mistakes I've ever made in the business was leaving ABC Records because uh, after Dizzy was a hit, you know, Dizzy was such a huge record and, you know, made the company a lot of money. And my contract was up right after that. So my manager was negotiating a new contract, and we were trying to get a certain number, and they were not uh, willing to go there. And so, you know, we decided to go somewhere else. And that was a huge mistake, because if I'd have stayed with um, ABC Records, even though I maybe I hadn't, you know, I wouldn't have gotten the deal I wanted, um, I'm sure I would have continued on to have some more hits in the early 70s. But after I left the label, you know, the hits just stopped coming because I couldn't get connected with another label that uh, was working for me as well as ABC Dunhill was. So I always kind of regretted that move, And uh, but it, it is what it is. And, you know, being a fatalist, I believe things happen for a reason, and uh, somehow things work out just fine. What label did you go to from ABC? Uh, Warner Brothers. Well, MGM first, and then Warner Brothers. And, uh, you know, the thing with MGM was with Mike Curb. That was when he had MGM. He was the head of MGM. And we recorded uh, a few records, released them. They didn't do anything. And then uh, we got a deal with Warner Brothers. And then that was Steve Barry produced me with that deal. And uh, we released one single called Dreaming Again, and that didn't go anywhere. And then so that just kind of petered out from that point on. And then. Um, in in the uh, early in the in the late seventies, mid seventies, Felton got me a deal with Monument Records, and um, ah. we were and uh, Felton produced the first album called Energy, and then Fred Foster produced the second album called um, uh, Full Bloom. So I had two albums with Monument, and they were country. And, and I had a couple of country chart records. Some Such Foolishness charted pretty high. and um, I had a Glitter and Gleam was released. That was produced by Felton. And I have a remake of Glitter and Gleam up on Spotify as well. And um, Glitter and Gleam did well. and uh, But nothing, nothing like Dizzy or Sheila. You know, they were not huge hits. But I had quite a few, several country chart records, and uh, they were trying to move me into the country genre, you know, but um, it never really kind of worked for me. I think I was just uh, a little too popish, you know, for it. Were you label mates with Roy Orbison at the time? A monument? I, I was, yeah. Uh, well, no, this was um, this was the mid-'70s. I think Roy oh. I think Roy had passed away. Uh, when did Roy pass no, no. away? He passed away in the um, 80s, in the oh, 1980s, because yeah, well, he did the traveling wheelbarrows. Yeah, yeah, he was he was still with Monument, but I don't think I think he was just had a catalog with Monument. I don't think he was still recording with Monument. But I'm not sure ah. about that. He might he might have been he might have been. I know Larry Gatlin came there about the same time I did. 
I saw Roy's second to last show because he played Boston before he played that final show. Uh-huh. It was, he was amazing. Second to last oh, he, show he ever did, he was amazing. Yeah, he was an amazing uh, artist. I, I toured with him a couple of times in England. You know, he was huge in England. And, um, of course, I had a lot of hits in England as well. You know, Sheila was a big hit there. And Dizzy's, Dizzy's still one of the classics over there. And... um so I did some tours with him and um, in England, and actually I worked with him in the southeast on several tours when Bobby Goldsboro was his guitar player. That was ah, uh, wow. Roy Orbison and the Candyman. That, that, that's wild. I know you worked with the Beatles. Um, they covered Sheila on the Hamburg and Cavern Club. They did. They, they recorded it live here at um, but there's a funny story about that. When I went to England to do the tour, you know, the Beatles were a supporting act on, on our tour. Chris Montez and I were the headliners of this tour in 1963. And uh, the Beatles were a supporting act. And they were just just getting started, you know. They were, they were actually a cover band, basically, is what they were. And uh, that's why they'd worked the Hamburg, uh, in Hamburg at the Star Club. They did all They covered all the American hits, you know. That's what they did. So they used to do Sheila in their show, and um, there's a record, a very crude recording of it out there of Sheila. But um, when I when I first met the Beatles, uh, we were doing a kind of a get together to rehearse with the band, and the Beatles came in, and, and we were introduced. And the first thing John did is he came over and said, "You know, we do your song Sheila in our show, but I'm not sure if we're playing it correctly." And I said, well, how, how are you doing it? He took his guitar out, and he, he started playing the chords on Sheila, and sure enough, he had the chords backwards. He was playing A-D-E, and it, it should be A-E-D. You know, he it had it right backwards. And so I said, yeah, you just play in the just flip it around and do the E instead of the D, and you got it. And he says, I knew it. Says, I, says George kept saying it's a D, and I said, I knew it was an E. He says, we've been doing it all wrong. <laughs> That is hilarious. I mean, for years later, you've got to be like, wow, the Beatles were playing me before they had their own hits. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it. Well, you know, right after that tour with the Beatles, they booked me in the Star Club, and I went over and I followed Ray Charles. Ray Charles was there the week before me, and they still had his posters up out in front of the club, you know, and um, my manager says, you got to take those down and put Tommy's posters up there. So they they did that, and then I was there. I played the Star Club for a week. I was there for a whole week. That's amazing. Um, what was it like with the Beatles opening for you? What did they play? Uh, well, they played uh, Twist and Shout. They played uh, Please Please Me, Love Me Do. Their first records were released, just released during that tour. Ah, and, um, okay. I think they opened their show with Love Me Do. And, uh, you know, it's been so long ago, I can't remember exactly. But, um, you know, that tour is really is really the tour that kicked off their career. In fact, you know, I, I became quite uh, friendly with uh, Brian Epstein during that tour. And Brian wanted to, he was talking to my manager here in the States about handling me in Europe, you know, managing me in Europe. And they were trying to put a deal together during that tour for that. So we, we got pretty friendly. And so at, when the tour finished, Brian asked me if I would uh, take a promo pack back and see if I could get uh, help get the Beatles a deal on ABC Records. 
And I said, of course. So he gave me a little promo pack. Basically, it was a plastic bag, of, of his record store plastic bag, Mims Records, I think it was called, and um, with an album, their first album in it, and a couple of singles and a bio. And so I came back, to, uh, I took the Queen Elizabeth back, to, the ship Queen Elizabeth back to New York. And uh, that, that was a five-day trip. And in fact, on that trip, on that on that ship back to New York City after the Beatles tours, when I finished writing everybody, I started writing everybody during the Beatles, during the tour with the Beatles. In fact, John used to let me use his Gibson guitar on the bus to write songs. He, he was very generous about letting me use his guitar. And um, side story here, that guitar just sold at auction for $1.5 million. <laughs> and so I figured since I wrote everybody on it, it's got to be worth at least 3.5 now, right? <laughs> I agree. So, <laughs> That's so, history, man. Yeah. So anyway, back to my story. So on the ship back, I go to New York, and Felton meets me at the docks. And I've been hyping Felton on the Beatles, talk, and telling them, you know, they're phenomenal, they're going to be huge, and of course, in the States, nobody knew who the Beatles was, and they thought I was just blowing hot air, you know. So he was willing to take me up to the president of ABC Records and, and let them hear the Beatles and see if they liked them. So we went right from the docks. I didn't even go to the hotel with my bags and everything. Went right to the pre to the office, Sam Clark's office at ABC Records in New York. And we go in, and Felton had already told them that I'd found this group, so they were expecting me. And... You know, I go in the office, and it's Sam Clark, the president, and Larry Newton, the vice president, and a few other executives there. They congratulated me on the tour and all the good publicity we got and everything. And he, Sam says, uh, Felton tells me, you found an act you would like for us to consider signing to the label. I said, yeah, they're called the Beatles. And it just got quiet in the room, you know, the Beatles. And so he said, well, let me see what you got. So I took the album out, and Sam put it on the turntable, Drop the needle. I think the first cut was either Love Me Do or Please Please Me. I can't remember. Played a few bars of it. Picked up the needle and said, I tell you what, kid, that's got to be the worst piece of crap I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Let us be the talent scouts. You just go write us some more hit songs and we'll make some more hit records with you. <laughs> so that was it with the Beatles. <laughs> That is like, you know, if one of your stars brings you an act, give it a listen, not a few bars. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah. Well, you know, they were kind of, you know, they had, a, you know, ABC Records back then had Ray Charles, you know, they had Paul Hanka, they had me, Fats Domino. They were full of stars, you know, they had all these acts and they really didn't need anybody else, I guess, but they were kind of tone deaf, you know, they were more or less... Uh, you know, bean counters. They didn't really know much. In those days, the, the people that ran the labels really didn't know much about music, really. But you wrote everybody on John Lennon's guitar. To me, that's that's uh, amazing. Yeah, that's right. On the bus, I started writing everybody, and I finished it on the Queen Elizabeth um, on the way back to New York. And then we went to Muscle Shoals and recorded it. You're listening to WBCALP. 102.9 FM, Boston. Boston's community radio station. Did you ever do shows with Bobby Hebb who wrote Sonny? I uh, never did. I, Bobby was on, when I was doing Dick Clark's Where the Action Is in the 60s, I used to be a regular on that show. And he did our he did that show. So I, I met him um, either on Where the Action Is or 
bandstand. I can't remember exactly which. I think it was where the action is. Ah, Bobby opened for the Beatles in that final tour in 1966. Um, mm -hmm. He was one of my best friends. He passed in 2010. But uh, I'm putting his box set together. So um, we have a box set of five discs of unreleased Bobby Head albums. I, I figure you must have met him on the on the journey. Yeah, yeah, brief, briefly, you know, but I didn't know him, but I, I did meet him, yeah. Um, He's such a nice man. Yeah, yeah, I know he was. All, all of those acts back then were very humble and very grateful for their careers. Um, it's a... Uh, you know, the world has changed a lot since uh, the beginning of rock and roll in the 50s. And it was such a, back in the 50s, rock and roll was, in fact, it wasn't even accepted here in the States, as you well know. You know, they, the public kind of resented it from the beginning. And, of course, it's, it's changed the world. In fact, my book, I have a book called From Cabbage Town to Tinseltown and Places in Between, which I released a few years ago. And... Um, I didn't want to do a tell-all book or, a, you know, one of those kind of books. So I, what I did is I tried to parallel the changes made during the 60s and 70s uh, with music and our culture, you know, how music influenced our culture and influenced the politics of the time, which was, you know, the 60s were very tumultuous time, you know, just crazy times back in the 60s. And um, so I've, I've tried to... Uh, make a visual of how it was with the music and how it related to the changing times of the period. How'd the book come about? Did Were you writing all along the way? Did you keep notes or did you just decide to write a book? Uh, well, I'm basically just decided to write the book. I, the reason I decided I had, there were so many stories going around that Tommy was born with a silver spoon in his mouth and that couldn't be further from the truth. So I just wanted to tell my story. So, you know, the way it really was for me as a child growing up here in Atlanta and, um, you know, and I talk about that in the book from my beginnings on through the career, working with the Beatles and, you know, I go into detail about how those things happened and um, it's kind of an interesting journey I've been on. So Cabbage Town is uh, down in Atlanta? Cabbage Town is a section of Atlanta, which today is is a very desirable section. Everybody wants to, you know, they've built it up. They have great condominiums there, and it's a great area to hang out in. But when I was a kid living there, it was um, it was a mill town. They had the the cotton mill was there, and uh, my aunt used to work in the cotton mill. And uh, my mom and I and my brother lived with my aunt, and. Um, on um, right in Cabbage Town, and you could see the cotton mill from our little house, as I remember. In fact, that that was the first time I got bit by a dog. I was like, <laughs> I went over to pet this dog, and the dog was on a clothesline. The chain was hooked to a clothesline, and I didn't know that he could run on that clothesline to the end. And so he caught me <laughs> at the end of the clothesline and bit me on the leg. But uh, oh my God. Yeah, Cabbage Town, that Cabbage Town, when I was a little kid, was a working class neighborhood, uh, little what they called um, those houses that you just go straight back, you know, um, just lined up on the street real close together. And it, in fact, they still have those houses there, but they've been refurbished and they, they look fantastic now. You know, they, it's a very desirable area. And you co-authored that. I have the guy's name. Uh, 
let's see, uh, Michael Robert Kerkorian, did he work with you on the book? That's correct. Yeah, Michael is the co-writer. Ah, how did you meet Michael? Uh, we just kind of met on the Internet. You know, I was talking. I was probably, I can't remember exactly. Uh, maybe I sent an email or something to somebody and talking about my idea to write a book. And he got in touch with me and said, look, I'll help you. And um, so I I interviewed him, and well, he came to Beverly Hills. I have, I have a condo in Beverly Hills, so I spent a lot of time there as well. And he came into Beverly Hills, and we hung out together, and I liked him. And uh, we started working on it. It took it took us a couple of years to do it. I, the, the great thing about Michael was that um, he was fantastic. He was very patient, for one thing. And I, I, I was very impatient. Writing a book is not like writing a song. I mean, it's it's a whole different process, and it's something that I'd really I, I would lose patience with. But he kept me in in the groove. He kept me interested, and he would um, communicate with me. And you know, I would start telling a story, and then he would say, "Well, what happened here?" And then I, that would jigger my memory about where the story went from there. You know, and he was very good at that. And um, I so I really needed that because there's no way I could. Have sit down by myself and uh and write those things out i just it would it's not something that i would enjoy doing but um he, he was really great to work with it's always good to have another set of eyes and ears oh absolutely you can never do everything by yourself as you well know you, you know it's always a team effort and uh, i've been very fortunate through the years to sound, surround myself with fabulous musicians uh, fabulous people, executives, managers, uh, producers. I mean, somehow God has just watched over me in that respect and put me in the right place at the right time. And um, there's no way w an artist can do any of this by themselves. It, they, they just need help and they need friendship and uh, coordination between all the teams. That's well, a very complex industry. Oh, very From complex. publishing publishing yeah. to promotion to every aspect of it is uh it's 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 not what people think when they're in their bedroom making music on the internet these days they don't know no exactly it is complicated in fact uh you know thanks to uh sonny bono when sonny was a congressman you know he he was elected congressman from palm springs when before he passed away and uh he got a law passed while he was a congressman that um, for all copyrights up to 1978, the artist, the songwriter can recapture those copyrights for an additional 39 years, keeping them from going into public domain. Well, I've taken advantage of that law that Sonny Bono started and, and made happen, and I've recaptured all of my copyrights from 19, what, 1960 to 1978. Oh, God bless you, man. That's great. So I have God bless Sonny for doing that. You know? Yeah, Sonny was very Sonny was very smart. He was very um, artist oriented. He because you know he'd gotten screwed. We all through the years have gotten screwed at one time or another, and um, so he he knew that as, as a songwriter he was going to lose his song after fifty six years. He would go into public domain. So he got that law passed so for his estate. And in other words, he wouldn't really. Uh, uh, profit from it. Neither will I, really. It's my estate and my my daughter, my two daughters, and my grandchildren. They will be able to have the advantage of those copyrights for
for an additional 39 years. So that that's what's good about it. Yeah, oh, that's really great. Tommy, we, it's it's a pleasure talking to you. We've got about four minutes left. My show's about an hour long. But, um, boy, I, I really appreciate the time you've given us. Anything you want to say out there? Any um, fun experiences that haven't been told to the public before? Or is it all in the book? Uh, most of it's in the book. It takes, takes me up to the... Of course, there's still things happening with me now. You know, time is not my friend, so I'm just trying to do as much as I can do and um, continue writing songs. I just, like I said earlier, I love writing songs and I, I love working in the studio. So I'm looking forward to the next year, 2023. I'm going to release uh, the new album and then I will release another album towards the end of 23 with, with Michael Lloyd. So that's exciting to me. It keeps the blood flowing and keeps me happy and um, keeps me doing what I love. I guess my final question is, are you doing any television shows or do you have a DVD out there or coming out? Uh, I did the Huckabee show a few weeks ago, um, and uh, that was a lot of fun. I haven't performed live since um, around 20, I think it was around 2019, I did my last show here in Atlanta. And because um, my wife, my wife had Alzheimer's. So that that was a very difficult period with her from actually from the time I had my bypass surgery until she passed away in 2020, um, she was suffering from Alzheimer's. So it was very hard for me to concentrate on performing. And uh, and so I just stopped performing that, that year, 2019. But I did the uh, Huckabee show and I had a lot of fun. And it's amazing. I, I seem to, it's like riding a bicycle, I guess. It all comes back to you. So, And you can see the Huckabee shows up on YouTube. They're both up there. I did Sweet Pea and Dizzy. And then I did oh. the Ray Stevens show as well, and it, it's also up on YouTube. Oh, so this is great. New performances from you on these two TV shows. Wow. Yeah, I did, I did Huckabee this year, and I did Ray's show uh, last year, or the year before. Tommy, you're an amazing and very important personality and i'm so honored to have you on the show today i really am well it's my pleasure joe i'm glad we could get together and uh i thank you for reaching out i i i know you you've heard little josette and i'm so glad you you like it and enjoy it and it was my pleasure to be with you today well i'll just have to say david bieber at the david bieber archives had actually sent me the pr and that's how I got in touch with you. So thank you, David. He's an amazing man, Tommy. If you come to Boston, you have to meet him. He has this massive archive. Wow. Beatles stuff. And yeah. And so he's the one who um, sent me the PR. And here we are well, today. Well, that's great. Thank you, David. <laughs> yep. And thank you, Tommy, man. Have a great day. Okay, buddy. It's great talking to you, Joe. You take care. Same here. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Tommy Rowe.